0: Thank you very much, Amy. It was actually a delight to be in the office hallway this week just to see a team of people working on those cards and getting out uh, responses to some of the requests. So thank you for doing that, and we look forward to seeing the different ways people continue to take next steps in the life of our church. By the way, even as Amy thank you for participating in that simple process of filling out the card, I want to thank you for uh, just your participation Over the last three weeks in our 21 days of prayer and fasting... Even as we're in this journey of following the life of Jesus, uh, we we set aside several weeks really at the beginning of this year as a time of prayer and fasting to pray for unity, to pray for wisdom, to pray for boldness. And just to remind you, uh, a passage of scripture that really guided our prayers throughout these three weeks was this passage from Philippians. And this is my prayer, Paul writes, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Last night at the fountain, it was great to hear different people share kind of what this experience had been like. And for me, I would say over the last three weeks as we've been praying for our church, a phrase that really locked into my mind was that idea of that your love may abound more and more. This reality that to really discern what is best, to make wise choices, to understand what really matters in life, our love needs to grow more and more. We need to be rooted in love, and really rooted in the love that comes through the gospel of Jesus. And so, this became a prayer for from me for our church community as we continue through 2022. And I, I hope for many of you there were ways in which different parts of this passage of scripture challenged and and resonated with you as we were praying along these lines. And and also, I realize for some of us this was a bit of a stretch. Maybe fasting in any way was something that was new to you. Uh, maybe praying scripture was something that was new to you and I just encourage you that that these can be habits that you continue last night, at the fountain someone shared you know I've just i 've started this practice of, of fasting in some form and i'm i 'm going to continue that in in an ongoing way and and that can be your experience likewise maybe the practice of praying scripture was something that was new to you, and you're like, well, where do I go from here? Well, let me just make sure you know this, that uh, each week we post a devotional guide for the week on hfcinfo.com, and there you'll find not only the, the devotions for this series that you find in the hardbound copy of our devotional guide, but you also find, you know, one specific passage to pray, and and how to pray that passage during the week. So I think if, if this is something new to you, let me just encourage you. This, this can be an ongoing part of how you pray, how you engage God. In fact, I would even, just for those who are parents, I think this is, this is a great prayer to pray for our kids, regardless of their age. So thank you for participating. And, and understand that as we, as we build these practices into our lives, what we're doing, we're really making space for God to be at work. We're rearranging our life and our approach to life to his transformative purposes. So thank you for being a part of that. Now, as we continue this journey of following the life of Jesus, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. And we come to, I think, an interesting passage in the life, the ministry of Jesus, because it's a pivot point. And here's here's what I mean by that. Um, I think for many of us, Regardless of your age, I think perhaps at times you can look back on your life story and say, this was kind of an important moment. This was a pivot experience. This was in a pivot time. It was, it, this was an important decision. This was an important transition. This was an important relationship. This was a pivot that is influenced. That's been significant in the rest of my life. Thinking about that this week, my mind went back to an experience of pulling out of our family driveway in Mobile, Alabama for the last time during the middle of my second grade year. My father had taken a new position in Dallas, Texas, and that would lead to our family moving from Alabama to Texas. And at the time, I, I still kind of remember that sense of unease about leaving all of that what, which was familiar. And little did I know at that time how, how in God's providence this transition would be so significant to ultimately other chapters in my life. Maybe you've got those kinds of moments. Well, this morning, we're going to come to what I think is a pivot moment in the life of Jesus Christ. First of all, it is, it's a pivot moment geographically. Because once, as we've already followed Jesus' life, we now come to the point where his, his ministry relocates to the region around the Sea of Galilee. So we read this in Matthew chapter 4. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake, that is the Sea of Galilee, in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. To give you kind of your bearings, let me, let me just show you this map and you'll see the, the pinpoint is at Nazareth and if you, you go a little farther, you're really starting to move into Galilee and there's that, that if you just kind of go directly north, you see Cana, the site of Jesus' first miracle. We looked at that last week and then if you, go, if you go farther east, you see kind of the western side of the Sea of Galilee and then up at the top, you see Capernaum. So Jesus is relocating really his ministry from Nazareth to the northwest west coast side of the sea of galilee it's a geographical pivot point and as it turns out much of his public ministry will take place in the region around the sea of galilee particularly that northwestern region so this is a pivot moment matthew chapter 4 geographically but it's it's also not simply a pivot point geographically it's a pivot point relationally Because this is the point where Jesus begins really in a public way to call his disciples on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And from this point on, as we follow the ministry of Jesus, we're going to see other people around him, his disciples, his followers. So we see this famous call in Matthew chapter 4 verses 18 to 22. They left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, once again, moving forward, what we're going to see is, as you follow the ministry of Jesus, you're going to see other people around him. You're going to see his disciples around him. And I think this is where you and I come in. Because we need to understand this. For the gospel writers, in showing us Jesus' relationship with these disciples... They're not only giving us information, right? They're not simply filling out the historical narrative. They're not simply giving us an inv- information. They're also giving us an invitation. Because here's what they're doing through these scenes. They are saying to us, you know, here's what it looks like to follow Jesus. They are saying, even as these individuals were followers of Jesus, you can be a follower as well. They are inviting us into this journey. So let's just talk about that for a moment, right? What, what is it? Let's just talk about what it means when Jesus says, follow me. So let's envision this scene by the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus coming up and, and inviting those fishermen to follow him. I'm not sure exactly how you envision that scene. I think in talking about this passage, it is helpful to address a couple of potential misconceptions. So here's one misconception that I think some people may have. I think it's possible just to read this story and you go, you know what, these guys had incredible faith. I mean, Jesus just walks up while they're working, says, follow me, out of the blue, and they drop everything. They drop their nets. They leave the boats. Matthew also highlights the sons of Zebedee leave their dad. And maybe, maybe you read, read that and go, look, I could have never imagined doing that. Right? Even, even if Jesus walks into your workplace or to, into your neighborhood tomorrow and gives you the same invitation, I think many of us would say, you know, my first response would be probably to have a conversation. I got some more questions. And you may even look at this passage and say, you know what, if this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus, that just seems like such blind faith, if that is what it means, this this isn't for me. Well, this this is one of the places where it really is helpful to have four Gospels. This is one of the reasons why as we go through this series we're actually using texts from different Gospels. Because as it turns out, when we read all of the Gospels together... There's actually a backstory to this scene, and the backstory is this: You remember, you remember, there was a forerunner to Jesus known as John the Baptist, and when John was out preaching in the wilderness, baptizing people, he was generating crowds, and among those crowds, there were people who became more serious. They were called disciples of John. And then Jesus shows up on the scene and has, has some interaction with John the Baptist. We know at least that he came to be baptized. And somehow in the course of that interaction, John begins conversations with, with some of his disciples to say, he's the guy you need to follow. This is, this is the one I'm talking about. So it's, it's almost like there's, there's, there's a, a certain kind of handoff between the ministry of John and the ministry of Jesus. And so some of these guys that have been around John now start, start interaction with Jesus. And we read this in, in John chapter 1, and, and, and we, we see clearly in John chapter 1, for instance, that Simon and Andrew had interaction with Jesus coming out of the ministry of John the Baptist. And I think it's quite possible that... that Some of these guys were actually at the wedding of Cana, Jesus' first miracle, right? There There was some previous interaction. And so by the time we get to this moment on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, in some sense, these fishermen have already been processing some of this. Right, they'd already heard what John the Baptist said about Jesus. They'd already they'd already had some interaction with him. They'd already perhaps even seen him do a miracle. So there's there's a backstory here. So this wasn't just kind of some zombie-like experience where all of a sudden they just walk off and follow Jesus. No, there there was more to the story. And in a similar way, maybe you would say something like, "Well, you know, I'm just I'm not sure what I think about Christ and Christianity. I grew up in the church. I grew up with these stories, but I'm just not sure anymore." And can I encourage you to kind of do what the the disciples did? Because in essence, they explored early on, and it it was in the process of their exploration of that initial interaction that Jesus then comes with a formal invitation. It's in the process of that initial interaction that they now hear these words, follow me. So I would encourage you to explore as well. Stay with us as we go through the story of Jesus. Get into the Gospels for yourself and simply read the story, and I think over time you're going to hear Jesus' invitation to you as well. So we need to understand it, it, this, this was more than just kind of blind faith. It was more than just something that was random. There's a backstory here. Okay. Second misconception I think we may have, and that is this. You may say, "Well, I know these guys. They followed Jesus. They, you know, they had some level of faith, and they were wanting to learn more." But you know what? These were just ignorant fishermen. We're we're more sophisticated now, right? We're more thoughtful. We're not as simplistic as they were. And, of course, in the book of Acts, it's clear that, you know, by the time Jesus' uh, ministry and the church get to Jerusalem, there is some criticism about the disciples in this way. They're simplistic people from Galilee. There was a little bit of, yeah, a little bit of um, geographical prejudice, so we say at work in the first century. But, if you look at these guys as simply simplistic, ignorant, subsistent fishermen that 's not the whole story. In fact, to introduce these guys to you, let me show you one other map. Again, this is the Sea of Galilee, but what you 're looking at now are, are the known ports on the Sea of Galilee in the first century now. This was a very active lake. I mean, to give you some bearings, it's it's roughly 13 miles by 8 miles. And all of these were ports that uh, were—there's archaeological evidence that they were being used in the first century. Now, as we read the story of the disciples, we come to understand Peter is operating out of Capernaum. So kind of if you go all the way to the top just a little bit to your left, the the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee, that's where— His operation was based. If you follow the coastline uh, to your left, farther south, you'll come to that community known as Magdala. We've heard that before. If you've heard the term Mary Magdalene, Mary of Magdala. One of the interesting things about Magdala, Magdala is there's now historical evidence that suggests that Magdala was actually the location of a fish processing operation. You see, it turns out in the first century, the fishing industry was very developed on the Sea of Galilee, as evidenced by all of these ports. In fact, believe it or not, there are certain techniques that were developed then that to some degree are still used today by fishermen on the sea. And as it turns out, when when these guys were catching fish, this wasn't simply for local consumption. Fish were being processed in Magdala for export to other parts of the Roman Empire. So if you view these guys simply as ignorant fishermen who didn't know any better, didn't have anything better to do, that's not the whole story. These guys were in what I would describe as successful, thriving family businesses, participating in one of the most advanced industries in that part of the world. And it's coming out of that background that they hear this invitation from Jesus. Follow me. So now that, that we have a little bit better understanding of the scene, let's just focus on this invitation. So what did, what exactly does Jesus mean here? I mean, what does it mean for Jesus to say to them, "Follow me"? What does them, follow me? What does it mean for Jesus to say to us today, "Follow me"? As you think about the nature of this invitation, let me, let me unpack it. In, in. First of all, I think we need to understand that Jesus' Jesus's invitation is relational. Interestingly, Jesus, Jesus is calling them into relationship. Now, you need to understand in first century Judaism, it, it wasn't uncommon for teachers to have disciples, to have followers. I realize that term disciple can seem odd to us. Maybe another way to think about it is apprentices. But here's where Jesus turned the cultural practice on its head. In the first century, the common practice would be this. The student would approach the teacher. The student would initiate the relationship. The student would be the one who says, can I, can I, can I be a part of your movement or your school? Can I be one of your students? But of course, Jesus completely inverts that. Here, Jesus is the one taking the initiative. and Of course, that's really that's God's program throughout Scripture, that he is pursuing us. He's pursuing his people, and that's clearly evident as Jesus calls his disciples. So, so he, he does this somewhat unusual thing, and he invites them into relationship as his disciples, as his apprentices. Follow me. Spend time with me. And, of course, that's exactly what happens. And it, it, it is interesting. If you read the Gospels carefully, you will notice in the Gospels that there's actually a distinction between the disciples and the crowds, right? Particularly early on in Jesus' ministry, it feels like he's always there are always people pressing in, right? Seen in Capernaum, right? People crowded around the house where Jesus is. It's so crowded that these people who are bringing, these guys bringing their friend to be healed, they can't even get through the crowd. They've got to go onto the roof. And that, that, that's how the, 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 the experience of Jesus' ministry feels early on, right? Always people pressing in. But if you pay attention, it really becomes apparent that, that when it comes to the crowds, much of it's just curiosity. Much of it's intrigue based on what Jesus is able to do and the interesting things he says. And over time, of course, the the crowds will eventually dissipate. And as it turns out in a real sense, all along the way, the the crowds were somewhat distant. It's the disciples who are having the conversations with Jesus. It's the disciples who are actually learning along the way. It's the disciples who truly accepted the invitation into relationship. And I think one of the lingering questions that sits right below the surface of the Gospels is this. Are you a disciple or are you simply part of the crowd? So when we understand this call of discipleship, we have to understand it is a call into relationship. But it's not only relational, it's also formational. Formational. Right? And, and here's what I mean by that. Not only did they spend time with Jesus, all along the way they are being shaped through this experience, right? Over time, they're, they're, they're shaped by who Jesus is and what he's doing. For instance, it's, you know, it's fascinating. So much of Jesus' ministry, as I said, there are crowds of people around him. He's, he's, he's always busy. There's always activity. And yet, somehow in the midst of that, Jesus would find time to withdraw to quiet places to pray. And so the disciples, over time, they see this. And, and what do they say? That, you, you know, they, hey, Lord, teach us to pray. We've never seen someone do, you know, pray like you do. Teach us to pray. So they're, they're learning through his experiences. They're being shaped by his experiences and his approach to life. But not only are they being shaped by his life, ultimately, they're also being shaped by his words. They're being shaped by his teaching. As, as Matthew tells the story of Jesus, right, we go from this scene of calling to, to a recognition at the end of chapter 4 that, you know, Jesus is now on the move. He's doing ministry all over Galilee. Then we get to chapter 5, and there's that, that famous sermon, Jesus' most famous sermon, we call the Sermon on the Mount. And Matthew is intentional in telling us this. Jesus sits down, and the disciples are with him. Right? They're now learning. They're being confronted by this amazing teaching that Jesus has. They're they're all around him when he tells these fascinating stories, these parables about the kingdom of God that that he's bringing into reality, the rule of God that now is at work through him. And they're amazing stories because they they blow their traditional categories of how God is at work. And so you see scenes where the disciples are kind of going back and forth with him, asking questions, help us understand. So the disciples, they're... Right? They're learning. They're being shaped in the context of this relationship. So it's relational. It's formational. (laughs) And finally, it's missional. Because even as they enjoy hanging out with Jesus, even as they're asking questions, even as they marvel at what he is able to do, there comes a moment when he actually sends them out. Right? He kind of kicks them out of the nest, so to speak. Hey, you're, you're going to become part of this as well. And so, so he sends them out. And then we get to the end of the Gospels. And what becomes apparent at the end of the Gospels is that all along, Jesus has been preparing these individuals to continue his mission as leaders of the church in an ongoing way. And now as followers of Christ, we're, we're part of that ongoing story. Our church community is part of that ongoing story. So this invitation is is relational. It's formational. And it's missional. This This was the nature of his invitation to them. It's the nature of his invitation to us when he says, follow me. Now, as you hear that invitation, let me just briefly make two other observations. First of all, I think it's important to note this. We need to understand that Jesus is calling us onto a journey, right? This is a journey. It's an invitation to a journey. Now, obviously, that was the experience of the disciples physically, Once, right? I mean, as, as we follow the storyline of Jesus, they're going to move in different parts of Galilee, even out of Jewish territory. Then they're going to make this long trek back to Jerusalem, which will lead to the cross and resurrection. So physically, they were on a journey, but I think that wasn't simply true physically. It was actually true spiritually. Because all along the way, they're learning. In fact, some of the most important conversations Jesus has with his disciples is in, along the road. It's in the journey. And similarly for us, I think we need to understand following Jesus means being on a journey with him. And among other things, that means there are lessons to learn all along the way. And in different seasons of our lives, this journey will look differently. And at times, the truth is, if we're honest with ourselves, at times, we have taken steps backward. At times, we have taken steps sideways. But all along the way, the invitation still echoes through. Follow me. Follow me. Follow me. And as we understand it's a journey, we also need to understand this. To move forward, (laughs) you must leave certain things behind. Right? I mean, if you're in a journey, if you're moving toward a destination, you, along the way, you're leaving certain things behind. I think it's interesting that even though Matthew, right, he gives us such a brief uh, accounting of this scene. It's, it's very brief. But even in his brevity, he does, he does take time to write this, right? They left their boats behind. They left their nets behind. James and John left their dad behind. And I think that's Intentional. Because what what he's kind of, what he's telling us right at the beginning is as you follow their experience and as you understand this journey of being a disciple and apprentice of Jesus, you need to learn along the way, you're going to have to leave certain things behind to follow him. I mean, as you journey with him, he reshapes, he reshapes our priorities. He reshapes our attitudes. He reshapes how we engage other people and approach relationships, how we handle our resources. And the truth is, over time, as we continue, as we learn, as we spend time in Scripture, as we practice even the the rhythms that we've done recently, as we do that, it becomes clear there are certain things we need to leave behind. At times, there are old priorities that need to give way to new priorities, old patterns of relating that need to give way to new patterns. Along these lines, I love what Paul the Apostle says in Philippians 3, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what's ahead, I press on towards the goal. But let me be clear. What this means is at times the journey of following Christ is costly. At times it is challenging. (laughs) That then leads to this question. So why take this seriously? Why pay serious attention to this? I mean, even Matthew 4, it's so much easier just to remember this as a (laughs) a flannel graph Sunday school lesson I got when I was a kid growing up in church. Why take it seriously now? Why take it seriously in embracing this journey when my status quo seems pretty comfortable right now? Well, there there are different ways to answer these questions. So let, let me just give you one, and that is this. Why take this seriously? Because if I am not being shaped by this relationship, I'm being shaped by something else. If I'm not being formed in this relationship, I'm being formed by other things. This week, I came across a fascinating quote by Jean Twinge. Some of you may be familiar with that name. She's a, a best-selling author and a noted social psychologist. And in this quote, she's making this point that we're in an interesting point culturally. Now, this was written before the pandemic, but here's what she's observing. She's observing the fact that, you know, in so many ways, we've progressed economically, in so many ways, we've uh, progressed technologically, and yet, even now, we are seeing rising rates of unhealthiness, and there are multiple ways to track that and to underscore that, and we are seeing serious mental health issues. And with that in mind, she writes, and let me just quote, she says this, I think the research tells us that modern life is not good for mental health. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? She continues. Obviously, there's a lot of good things about societal and technological progress. And in a lot of ways, our lives are much easier than, say, our grandparents' or our great-grandparents' lives. I think we would all acknowledge that. But she continues. But there's a paradox here. And here's the paradox. That we seem to have much ease and relative economic prosperity compared to previous centuries. Yet there's this dissatisfaction. There's this unhappiness. There are these mental health issues at work like depression and anxiety. And although she doesn't word it this way, what I think she's getting at is this. Despite so many ways in which we can celebrate progress, economically, socially, technologically, and, and I'm, you know, I can celebrate so much of that, including my iPhone. Despite all of that, there's still something wrong culturally with how we understand life is to work, how we understand what human flourishing looks like, and how we find meaning and purpose in life. There's something about the assumptions at work culturally culturally that's not working. And as I think about that, I also think about these words from Jesus. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. And I think some of us can say, that's me. And I think culturally, there are people around us who could resonate with that imagery. We're we're weary and burdened. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Now stop there. This image of yoke was an image used in Jewish culture, often to communicate the idea of one's way of life or one's teaching. In multiple Jewish sources, for instance, you can see reference to the yoke of the law, the yoke of the Torah as a way of life. And this is why what Jesus is saying is here, take my way of life, follow me, take my way of life. That's why it's followed by the expectation and learn from me. But then he makes this provocative claim for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And what Jesus is doing is making this radical claim that my way of life is what you actually need. My way of life is what you've been designed for all along. You've been designed for a relationship with me. This is why other yokes are heavy and burdensome. Other yokes where you're meant to make life work on your own. You were never meant for that. Don't take another yoke, take mine. Follow me. Follow me. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we come to this this scene of the call of these early disciples on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And although it's a place very different from our own in some ways it's a different cultural time different cultural place different cultural traditions i pray in the midst of that we would still hear jesus's invitation follow me follow me i pray we would hear it in the course of this series as we're following the life of jesus and understanding who he is and what it means to follow I pray that in different ways we would see ourselves in these stories. And I pray even now that your spirit would just remind us that this is the invitation before us. Father, I pray for some here perhaps who have yet to to start that journey. I pray that they would hear this invitation particularly to them. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. And giving us this invitation, Jesus says that it can sound surprising. It's not burdensome. It's accessible. And that is true because he is the one who has made the way. And we must hear this invitation to follow within the context of his work on our behalf. We must hear this invitation to follow within his initiative, his work, through the cross and resurrection. And so with that in mind, as kind of we respond to this invitation in a tangible way this morning, we're going to celebrate in a time of communion. So I'm going to give you a moment, and our worship team is going to lead us, and I'm going to invite you to take that cup. You can go ahead and prep it, pull the top open, and uh, take out the wafer. Then you can open the bottom flap, and I'll be back in a moment to kind of lead us. But even as we sing this song, may may I just remind you, But as we've looked at this ancient story, the invitation still stands. Follow me, follow me, follow me.